So this is Genesis chapter 19. Two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, This fellow came here as an alien and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you. Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city but his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favour in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulphur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. 
Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities, and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought, brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old and there is no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine and the older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day the older daughter said to the younger, Last night I lay with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you go in and lie with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went and lay with him. Again he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. Well, good morning. There are some stories that we grow up with that have the effect of um, teaching us about the world, about life, about who we are. I, I, I learned from Hansel and Gretel that I should never walk in the woods alone, um, and from Red Riding Hood that I should never trust my grandma. <laughs> and as an Englishman growing up, I learned that I was part of a nation that was once um, ruled the world. And I learned that we were the nation that defeated the evil of Nazi Germany. It was only when I grew up that I, I learned that we enslaved and bullied much of the world and that we only won because there were others involved. Um, and if we hadn't been for the help of the Americans, we never would have won. But there are stories, nonetheless, that we tell our kids, that we tell one another, that shape our identity and that teach us about the world, about things that we think are important and help us to see our purpose I have a friend who, who tells his family story often. I've been in church. I've often heard him share it as a testimony. His family story that he grew up in a family that was quite immoral and dysfunctional, and yet God rescued him and his family. His parents both became believers and broke a line of destruction. And he, as a result, uh, has four grown-up children now, three of them going on with God, involved in 
um, the local churches where they live and worship. And he shares this story often. And he'd tell it to the church and he'd tell it to his family. We're the family. We're a family that has been rescued and been created by God. And the purpose of him telling that story is to reinforce it, reinforce that point. You have stories in your family that you grew up with. Some of them funny ones about the time that grandpa always did this and, and the time that little Johnny ran off and got lost and therefore we've learned never to leave the house ever again. We, teach, we have stories that we've grown up with and we make fun of each other for. Um, our society has a national, has an overarching story. Western society for the past few hundred years has been teaching through our, our schools implicitly and explicitly that we're living in the age of the Enlightenment, they call it. Uh, the age where reason and science has done away with religion and faith. And that's the prevailing story that undergirds our secular society, that religion's an evil. And that God is an evil God, and we don't need to believe in God. But they're stories nonetheless that shape us and I'll help us answer the question, who am I? Some of the stories you tell yourself on a regular basis. Uh, you do so to reinforce a sense of identity. Some of them are destructive stories, and you know you should stop telling yourself that story. But we do it. We use stories for that purpose. And so we come to this story in Genesis that David read out for us, uh, arguably one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. And you can see why I introduced it by saying it carries a, a 15, or to carry a 15-rated certificate is horrible. The contents of that chapter, famous story, the destruction of this city, um, that, that would have been used to teach the generations at the time that we look to now to teach us things about God. We see shining forth from this story immediately two main themes of the entire Bible. Namely that sin or the consequence of sin is death, but God is a determined rescuer. God is a determined rescuer. Uh, you see it in the story, the attempted gang rape of the men, Lot's offer of his daughters to the crowd. Uh, we then later find out that these daughters were actually engaged and betrothed to the others. We find the, the sons-in-law laughing off the threat of death. Lot's wife dying as she flees the city, the destruction of the city, the despair of the daughters, the incest and the subsequent conception of the daughters by their father. It can and it should, I think, leave a sort of sick feeling in our stomachs. But it's against that dark background that we see the grace of God shining all the more brightly. Rather like when you go to a jeweler's and they get the diamonds out and they, they present diamonds on a black cloth. Because the blackness of the cloth shows off the shininess of the diamonds all the more. This story, I believe, teaches us something. It teaches us that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God is a determined rescuer. God is a determined rescuer. We learn that sin's consequence is death, but we learn overarching, over and above that, that God is a determined rescuer. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whether you believe in God or not, whether you feel like you're a good person or a good Christian or not, God is a determined rescuer. And we're going to look at that theme this morning in the next 20 minutes, that God's determination to rescue, we see it in the emphasis of the Exodus emphasis of the, of the story. We see it in the commitment to the covenant of God, and we see it in the forcefulness of God's forgiveness. That's where we're going. Let's, look at, let's start together by looking at this. The Exodus emphasis. The Exodus emphasis that shows us the determination of God. There's a repeating story throughout the Bible. 
a story that went to shape the, the, the national identity of the Jewish people still to this day. The story of the Passover, that God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, got them to paint some blood above a doorframe. He passed over, bringing death and destruction to the houses where the blood on the doorposts wasn't. And then the family were forced to leave the city quickly and out into the desert where they could worship God. And every year, every week almost, since that day, the Jewish people have told that story to one another. The story of Passover, the story of the Exodus, the story of how God rescues. And it's a story that repeats throughout the Bible, as we'll see. We'll consider some of the parallels from the story that David read to us with the famous story of the Exodus that many people know. In the chapter before, the angels are described as passing by Sodom and Gomorrah, just as they will do in Egypt. There is threat to life at the doorway, just as there was in Egypt. And the doorway becomes a site of angelic protection for Lot and family and angelic judgment upon those outside the doorway. There's a pressing call to leave with the families and the relatives with all of their possessions. And there's the notion in this that an outcry has reached the ear of Yahweh. In this case, it's the outcry, outcry of the city's wickedness. In the Exodus story, it's the outcry of the enslaved Israelites. An evening meal is eaten of unleavened bread, in this case by Lot and the angels. The angels then seize the hand of Lot and his family and take them out of the city, something that the book of Jeremiah tells us that God led the Israelites out by the hand out of slavery in Egypt. And then Lot is instructed to flee literally to the mountain. And a witnessing pillar is established. In this case, it's Lot's wife as a pillar of salt. In the Israelites' case, it's a pillar of stones as an act of remembrance of what God has done. So we see in the emphasis on the Exodus that in the darkness of sin and slavery, the emphasis on the Exodus tells us that God is a determined rescuer. It reminds us, as you read the story, certainly it would have remind the, uh, reminded the original readers that God is a determined rescuer. He leaves no man behind. His people he goes after and he rescues them from sin and death's consequences. So we see the emphasis on the Exodus. We see also the covenant commitment on, from God. If you uh, just put this verse up behind us, this is uh, verse 29, which is in many ways the summary verse of the story that we had read to us. So it was that God destroyed the cities of the valley. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. God remembered Abraham. Um, let's talk about God's memory for a moment. The Bible talks a lot about God's memory, God remembering things. And when it does that, it doesn't mean he'd previously forgotten and suddenly went, oh yeah, I should rescue, I remember now. Um, instead, it means that God brought it to mind. He recalled. He didn't forget, if you like. And dozens of times we read in Scripture of God remembering. And naturally, when you think of the idea of God remembering, I don't know if you're like me, but I, I, I often think, well, God's more likely, he's going to remember my mis he's going to remember my immorality. He's going to remember my sin. He's going to remember the things that I've done wrong. So I don't know if you've had this experience when I come to pray, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll you know, come to pray, and I'll say, good morning, Father. Um, remember me? And then sometimes the voice can come, yeah, I remember you. I remember you. You're the one. You're the one that said you'd do this, and you didn't. Like, yeah, yeah, that was me. And the, or, or the Lord would say, you're the one who said you'd never do this again. And you have. Yeah, yeah that was me. And I was like, yes, yes, I remember. 
And sometimes when, when we come to in prayer or we come to God, we think that he's the one who's going to say, I remember you. <laughs> and rub his hands together with glee as if to say, I'm now going to punish you. Naturally, think, naturally, naturally speaking, that's perhaps how we might imagine God. Except in the Bible, it tells us the opposite. In Isaiah chapter 43, it says that God chooses to remember our sins no more. God has placed our sins as far away from his memory as the east is from the west. That's how far. That was the song you have pronounced. I can't remember the song. That's how far. Yeah, we all sing songs about it. And so catchy, I can't remember it in the moment. Always good me trying to think of something on the spot. He chooses not to remember our sin and our wickedness. And to re- he doesn't remind us of it. He doesn't rub it in our faces. And notice that. In that passage from Isaiah, God remembers our sins no more. It doesn't say God forgets your sin. I mean, for God to forget something, that's not impressive. I forget things all the time. And that's not impressive. When, we, when Amy and I go out for the day and we're about to leave, and I say, I can't find my keys. She doesn't go, wow, you've forgotten where your keys are again? You're amazing. She doesn't do that because to forget things isn't very impressive. God doesn't forget our sins. He instead chooses not to remember them. He doesn't drag them up. He doesn't bring them to mind. But God does remember things in the Bible. What does he remember? The psalmist tells us that God remembers our frailty, our weakness. He remembers that we're dust, that we're grass. He remembers that we're not going to live forever and that we're full of mistakes. But more often than not, when it says that God remembers, it says that God remembers the covenant, the promise that he's made. See, in the book of Genesis a lot, he remembered the promise, the covenant he made to Adam or to Noah. Or in this case, he remembers Abraham. He doesn't remember Abraham's name. He remembers the promise that he had made to Abraham. And because of his promise to bless Abraham and Abraham's family, he thinks, I'm going to go look after Lot because Lot is in Abraham's family. It's his nephew. And so he goes after him. God does Lot good. Because he remembers Abraham, because of his association with Abraham. God is committed to the covenants and the promises that he makes to us. Jesus made a covenant. That's what the Last Supper was all about. He was making a covenant with his followers. And he again had a meal with unleavened bread with his disciples to remind us of the exodus, of this exodus, of exoduses throughout the Bible. Jesus is is saying, I'm about to enact the greatest exodus of all. I'm going to liberate not just the Jews from slavery in Egypt. I'm going to liberate the entire world from slavery to sin and fear of death. Jesus makes a covenant with us. And as Christians, when we become a Christian, we say, I believe in Jesus. I ask him to forgive me. And we enter into that covenant relationship with us, with him. As a result, God remembers the covenant and he does us good. Remembers the covenant of Jesus. God does you good. God helps you. God's for you. God comes to free you because of Jesus. Because of his commitment to Jesus' covenant. I mean, look at this, in the story here. Lot doesn't deserve good things to happen to him. He makes some foolish decisions. Firstly, he, he, goes after, he, he goes to settle in the land of Sodom because he sees it as being a well-watered place, rather like Egypt, with another allusion to the Exodus there. He sees it as a well-watered green place. So he judges, as we learned last week, he judges with his natural eyes rather than judging based on the promises of God. But Lot's decisions are poor. I mean... Who offers their daughters in exchange for some 
strangers they've just met. I mean, it's abhorrent to us in the West, but even more so in the Eastern mindset. It's abhorrent what he would do there. He makes decision after decision that's foolish. Then when he can't can't convince his sons-in-law to join them as they flee the city, Um, he then dithers in the city and the angels have to force him out. The angels then say, go to the mountain. He says, no, I'll go to the city. He goes to the city and then concludes, yeah, the angels are right. I should have gone to the mountain and then goes to the mountain. He makes poor decision after poor decision. He likes to present himself as being someone who's quite righteous and moral. Don't, don't you know, violate these strangers. Have my daughters instead. And then when his daughters get him drunk and make advances on him, he doesn't refuse them or stop them either. This is not a man that we're to look at and go, this is how you should behave, Christians. This is what it looks like to live a godly life. No, it's not. It's the opposite. That God blessed Lot in spite of Lot's best attempts and best efforts to not be worthy of blessing. But that's the point. God is a determined rescuer because of his commitment to a covenant that he made with us. Uh, I read this week uh, an author called Timothy Jones who tells a story of um, the time they took one of the, the time they took their adopted daughter to Disneyland. This girl had previously been in, a, in an adopted family, and for various reasons it had broken down. And when this girl was in this family, the family would go on holiday, and on a particular time they went to Disneyland, but for whatever reason they took their biological children but not the adopted child. They left her with other family relatives. And so this daughter in this previous family thought the reason she didn't go to Disneyland was because of her bad behavior, because there's something unlovely about her. When she got adopted by Tim and his family, he heard this story and decided to take her to Disneyland, made a promise. We as a family are going to go to Florida to Disneyland. And as the months drew closer, her behavior suddenly became a lot worse. She started pushing all of the boundaries. She stole from the family. She started being very rude to the other siblings, doing everything she could, it seemed, to wind the family up and prove herself to be a rebel. And on one particular occasion, Tim was disciplining her and told her off. And and she said, said, is the family going to go to Disneyland without me now? And And he said the thought had never crossed his mind. But he looked at her and said, the family is going to Disneyland. Are you part of this family? She said, yes. He said, well, you're going to Disneyland. Anyway, eventually they went to Disneyland and there was just enough um, stuffed animals and adults dressed as mice and rides to entertain and, you know, amaze this girl. And as they were putting her to bed that night in the hotel room, Tim was tucking her into bed and praying for her. And she said to him, she said, I finally got to go to Disney. But she said, It wasn't because I was good, but because I'm yours. And he said, that's right. It's not because you're good, but it's because you're mine. It's the same for us as Christians. God blesses you, loves you, not because you're good, but because you're his. Because he's made a covenant promise and commitment to you. You see, where we forget the covenant, where we forget the promises we've made to God, he remembers This is the story of the Bible again. Israel making promise after promise to God and forgetting and God remembering them. This is my life in miniature. He said, I make statements about what I'm going to do for God and forget. I used to keep a journal uh, of my kind of life as a Christian. And on one page, it would be, I love God. I'm never going to doubt God. On the next page, it would be, is there even a God? <laughs> I'm just going to do my own thing. 
And that happens to us often. We have people sometimes come out the front and they share a story of God's goodness and what God's done for them. And then six months later, it's like, where'd they go? <laughs> they forgot. We forget. But God doesn't forget. He's committed to the covenant promise that he's made to us. So we see the determination of God the rescuer in the emphasis on the exodus, in God's commitment to the covenant, and finally in the forcefulness of God's forgiveness. Again in verse 29 it says that Lot was sent out of the city. The angels literally grabbed him by the hand and thrust him out of the city. God, God's forgiveness is forceful in that sense. The angels save him from the mob, tell him what to do to be safe, then grab him and throw him out of the city. God rescues him in spite of himself. God's forgiveness is forceful. Again, many of us can testify to that. We were minding our own business, just living our lives for ourselves, going our own merry way, and God's forgiveness forcefully broke in with a kind of implored, passionate plea that I love you and I'm for you and I want to forgive you. Numbers of us testify to that extent. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the famous writer of the Narnia stories, when he became a Christian, he described himself as being the most unwilling convert in all of England because he realized just through sheer force of will, God's love and goodness to him just wore him down. And he thought, I have to respond. I think Francis Thompson wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven, making that point again that he, through the years, pursues us, chases us down. Jesus said that. He said, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus comes to seek and to save that which is lost. He's come for you and me. What that tells us is that the saving work of God is God's initiative from first to last. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian because God has sought you out. God has loved you. God has pursued you. Theologians call this um, God's irresistible grace. Because when God reveals his love for us, he reveals it in such a way that it is irresistible in nature. He makes it so that you can't help but respond to him. He forces himself upon you in that sense. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the preacher, he talks about this theological concept of God's irresistible grace. He says that the Holy Spirit implants in us an idea, a principle. And then says this, that um, it's up on the screen actually. He works upon our will. He does not strike me. He does not beat me. He does not coerce me. He leads. He persuades. He acts upon my will in such a way that when he does, the call of the gospel is effectual and it is certain and it is sure. God comes to you this morning, not as a bully forcing you, but as one who is willing to woo and to love and to convince you. The God of heaven has not, I mean, often people say this, oh, I'd believe in God if he did X, and they'll name something, which often, even if he did X, they still wouldn't believe because you know, our rational minds find ways of justifying what happens. Oh, it was a coincidence. But that's what we say. We say, oh, if God, you'll do this, then I will X. But God comes to us, not in a, you have no choice but to believe, but in a, I want to win you. I want to woo you. I want to draw you to myself so that you can't help but choose me. Again, Charles Spurgeon's good on this. He's a preacher, again, from the 19th century. He said this, One weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. An experience none of us can relate to. The thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? I prayed, thought I. 
But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the Bible. How came I to read the Bible? I, I read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I've not departed to this day. I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God, he says. God's grace is so forceful, it revives the soul. Outside of Christ, the Bible says that we are dead in our sins. Spiritually, we're dead. We're not just, we're not just non-Christian. The Bible says that spiritually, we're not alive to God. Dead people can't make many decisions. If I asked a dead person which way to go, they, they wouldn't respond. A dead person cannot believe in God. The Holy Spirit instead has to come and revive that person and bring them to life. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian because God himself has breathed life into you. Sometimes we think, I'm a Christian because my parents were Christians and they dragged me up going to church and then I made a decision for my own sake, for myself. But I'm really a Christian because my parents are Christians. It's not true. You're a Christian because he's chosen you, because he's revealed his grace to you, because he's, his forgiveness has been so forceful on you. I grew up in a home with, that didn't go to church. And so for me, this sometimes feels a little bit more obvious. Again, I was just minding my own business. And suddenly I found my eyes open to the concept of God and the idea of wonder in the universe and thought if there's, if there's this much beauty, there must be a designer behind it all. And it led me on a journey to find Christ. God's love towards you is such that he took the initiative. We weren't, of course, just neutral to God. We were more like the sons-in-law in this story, laughing off the threat of death. <laughs> death, that's funny, yes. Life outside of God is bad. Are you kidding? Have you seen how comfortable this society is? Have you seen how much nice stuff I've got in my house? What do you mean being, being, not being a Christian is dangerous for me? What do you mean there's the threat of living a life outside of God and of reaping destruction for myself? What are you talking about? I'm not enslaved to sin. It's not sin anyway. I just What I choose to do, I can stop doing it at any point I like. And then Jesus comes and says, but you're made for something so much more than this. You're made to know God, to be friends with his. He starts to plant an idea in your heart, in your mind. It starts to call you, starts to draw you, starts to woo you, starts to win you. To the point that I found myself as a young, young man sitting in church services, or sitting, no, sitting in my RE class, my RE class of all places at school, just having to sit on my hands. I was so excited. I thought, what is wrong with me? Why am I getting excited about the Bible? This is weird. I better not tell my friends. I didn't tell my parents. How awful. But it's the sign of God's grace starting to draw you. And if you're someone, if you're sat here listening to the story of God's love and forgiveness, it's because he's calling you. It's because he's drawing you. It's because he's knocking on the door of your life. It's because he's offering you forgiveness. And more than that, he's offering you life. He's offering you friendship with God again. Do you desire to turn to him, to embrace him, to receive him? Turn back to him. That desire comes from him in the first place. Do you feel it today as we sing the songs? As we, hear, as we remind ourselves of the themes of God's love? What does it do to you as you sing them? Does it provoke an emotional reaction? You think, why am I singing? We've had this before. People come to church and they'll cry during the songs. And think, why am I crying? I don't even believe this. God is drawing you. God loves you. God is offering you forgiveness. And this is encouraging not just to those of us, if you're not a, not a believer, this isn't just encouraging to you that God's calling you. To those of us who are Christians, this is encouraging because God's commitment to me isn't dependent on my performance 
on my goodness, on how well I'm doing. I rejoice not in my grip of God, but in his mighty grasp of me. He's, he got hold of me and he never lets me go. And there have been many times in my life where I've tried to run hard away from God, but the hound of heaven always catches up. The psalmist says, goodness and mercy follows me all the days of my life. God is pursuing you. He's chasing you, but not with judgment and condemnation. He's chasing you with forgiveness and favor and goodness. And this story, the story of the determined rescuer, seen in the emphasis on the Exodus, God's covenant commitment, God's forceful forgiveness. It's a story, like all of our stories, that shapes the very core of how we see ourselves and how we see life. If we allow it to, if we allow it to get under our skin and become our story. Who am I? I'm not an Englishman. My story isn't a story of national success over the Nazis. It's not my story. Happened, happened to the people that I've been born into, sure, but my story's bigger than that. My story's grander than that. It goes further back than that. And that's the story that God looks to write over your life. The story of the determined rescuer and how he, with sheer guts and grit and determination, took on our greatest enemies, not of Nazi Germany, but of Satan, sin, and death, defeated them on the first Easter Sunday and made it possible for us to have a mass exodus out of slavery to sin and of living for self so that we can know him. And he offers it all as a free gift for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I just want to read something that he wrote as we close. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a German Christian living during Nazi Germany. And... Uh, led kind of many different attempts to undermine the Nazis and to speak up for the oppressed and to recognize the evil of what was going on. And two years before the end of the war, he was arrested and imprisoned for what he was doing. He spent two years in prison as a young man. He was engaged to be married, but never got married. He died a young death, um, and yet his, the impact of his death is still felt by many people. But in in, the, in a, the month leading up to his death, uh, where he was imprisoned in the labor camps, he wrote a, a short poem about who he was and his identity. And he says this, Who am I? They often tell me I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from a country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as though it was mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know? Restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once, a hypocrite before others? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. <coughs> Who am I? Whoever I am, I'm yours. That's what you can say when you've been rescued by the determined rescuer. Am I what other people say of me? 
What I see in myself, my own frailty and weakness and sin. Who am I? Whoever I am, I'm yours. Because we've been taken hold of by a determined rescuer who doesn't let his own go. That's who you are this morning. That's what the story of Sodom, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah has to speak to us. That the determined rescuer goes after his own. He frees them from slavery. He remembers his promises to them. And his forgiveness is forceful enough to endure with you throughout your life. We're going to respond together by singing some gospel truths about what God has done for us. If you're not a believer, then today you can become a believer. You can respond to the forceful forgiver, the determined rescuer. If you are a Christian, let's use this as our way of responding and of coming to God with gratitude for all that he's done. Why don't you stand with me and we'll pray together. Father, thank you that you're the determined rescuer. You love us. You've sent your son for us. You've come to forgive us. You make promises to us. And thank you that you're the one who promises to lead us out of slavery. Whatever slavery to habits or destructive thoughts we might find ourselves in, you're the one who's able to free us. We ask you for your help and we thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen.